Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. The Science of Sports podcast with Professor Ross Tucker and sports journalist Mike Finch. Coming up in this episode. We process at night. Multiple systems are susceptible to the effects of sleep deprivation. The best way for us to wake is just to wake naturally. Circadian rhythms actually select people for sport. Those who had the genetic tendency to be more morning behavior had stuck, presumably chosen and stuck with the sport. It's super clear. We are designed for unbroken, consolidated nocturnal sleep. So just before we started our podcast this morning, uh, Ross Tucker started uh, yawning. And I don't know why it's, he's yawning. It might be because he did a very hard ride yesterday with me and he couldn't keep up and he was struggling, which is a, actually a complete lie. He's much stronger than me. Or he might be the fact that we're discussing a very interesting subject, I think, for pretty much anybody that lives on this planet at the moment. And that is all about sleep. And we have a very special guest with us this morning, Dr. Dale Ray, who is the Senior Researcher, Division of Exercise Science and Sports Medicine at the Department of Human Biology, Faculty of Health Sciences, University of Cape Town. But more importantly, she is the founder of Sleep Science, which is a separate company focusing very much on the science of sleep. Is that, is that a, an accurate description, Dale, of your, uh, of your current job? Yeah, I'd say so. <laughs> Tell us about sleep science. How did it, how did it kind of all start? And I mean, it's, we're going to get into a lot of different things on this podcast, but how do you get into the subject or the business of sleep science? Sure. So I definitely fell into sleep research by accident and it was a happy accident and um, we won't have to worry about that was anymore. It was a soft landing. <laughs> it was a soft landing, very much facilitated by uh, Prof. Tim Noakes. And anyway, over the years, as the more research I did in sleep, the more I realized through working with participants in research that so many people have poor sleep and they just say, oh yeah, I'm a poor sleeper. So they'll label themselves mm -hmm. as a poor sleeper, but then they just accept it. They say, well, that's that. Um, and people just, for me, it's not good enough to accept something not being right. And so I started to think with my students, perhaps we can actually do something because it seemed that people didn't know what to do. If they had poor sleep, they would they were at a loss as to where to go. Because quite frankly, unless you've got a disorder like obstructive sleep apnea or potentially insomnia, then people think, well, there's not much I can do about it. Yeah. So we started this little business where we can um, assess and monitor people's sleep because as scientists, of course, that's what we're trained to do. Mm -hmm. And through that, we've developed uh, ways to try and help people. So we very much help one-on-ones, but also groups. We do a lot of education because as you'll notice, uh, sleep's very much a passion. I know Ross has got a ton of questions, but the one question I've always wanted to ask is at your sleep science facility, are there beds that people <laughs> sleep in and spend the night there so you can actually analyze them? Sure. So we do our um, sleep research in two ways. We do have um, the facilities to have people overnight, mm -hmm. and we've done quite a few studies like that. And that's really useful when we really want to know what's happening in the brain. Um, we use very high-tech equipment so that we can tell exactly what's going on. And also when we want to manipulate the environment. So, for example, we've done studies where we induce jet lag um, of about three days, uh, sort of well, we use three days to induce mm -hmm. jet lag and look at people's recovery, et cetera, there. But actually, the reality is, in my mind, sleep's very practical. 
and I actually want to know what's happening in your home, in your normal sleep environment. Mm. And so we then use a mixed sort of method where we do a lot of um, checking out of people's sleep at home so that we can see what's really going on. And there's a ton of apps available at the moment, isn't there, where you can put your phone next to your pillow and it will tell you what your sleep quality is. And we'll probably get into that a bit later. But Ross, I mean, from, from your side, obviously we're talking specifically on this podcast around um, sport, but this is obviously a much a topic about health rather than just sport, isn't it? Yeah, it is. And we've got this theme going this year, looking at health and performance. And we speak a lot. We've done podcasts on exercise, science of perfect training, how to monitor training, how to recover better and so on. But none of that stuff exists without proper sleep. So I think it's quite foundational. My perspective on it was, and this is specific to Dale, was that you started the research towards the back end of my time. Dale and I overlapped at the university for mm-hmm. a few, few years. We were colleagues on some non-sleep related projects. But you, you did research before the business began. Yeah. So the, the business was a logical extension of the research. Does it bother you to see so many people jumping on sleep and making it quite faddish? Oh, you know, that's going to happen. You can't get upset about these things. I think I just trust what we do and um, it doesn't bother me too much. Because mm-hmm. like you, you alluded to the apps and there are now, I mean, I can't open social media. I don't know how social media knows that I've been discussing sleep in the last few weeks, but these days I open social media and I go, I, my phone is listening to me, I swear. But I get, I get all sorts of adverts for try this, do that. Here's a thing you can read on your phone before you go to bed, which seems counterproductive and somewhat paradoxical, as we'll probably get into. Um, but, but at the same time, I talk to other people and they say, sleep should actually be really basic and easy. Yet we overcomplicate it. Is that true, mm. or is that someone just editorializing and simplifying it for himself? Probably a bit of oversimplification. I mean, at the end of the day, sleep is a, a basic thing that every single living creature does. Doesn't matter what we're talking about. Everything, every creature, every human has a rest phase. It's built into our evolution. It's built into our biology. So it shouldn't be something that's difficult. But because when it does get difficult for people and the consequences can be so um, devastating, I guess then it gets quite popularized. And also, if you think about it, people didn't really discuss sleep much until um, sort of maybe 30, 40 years ago. From a research perspective, whenever people did sleep research, it was always very much around from the psychology perspective. So psychologists and dreams and understanding sort of sleep from that perspective, that's where much of the initial research was done. But from the physiology perspective, for sure, sleep medicine's been going for for some time, not as long as the sleep psychology work. But we're only really getting to grips now with like the long-term consequences of sleep loss and then the effects on our health and disease and even more recently performance. And so that's probably why it's got picked up on and it's now becoming popularized because people know to protect health, I must look after my diet, I must be physically active. And those messages we get ad nauseum and now it's like, oh, there's actually something new we can talk about and that's sleep. Yeah, well, I, I, here's, a, here's a side question that I don't think you can, when you talk about the psychology of sleep, is that People always ask, are your dreams related to reality, for instance? I mean, <laughs> is there any way of checking whether your dreams are just random collections of thoughts or are they actually based on any kind of psychological reality? Do we know that? <laughs> I'm going to be very careful here because I'm a scientist, <laughs> not a psychologist. So when I when I present it in this way, it's certainly the scientist's perspective and I respect anyone else's views. Mm. But from an actual functional perspective, when we dream, we dream in a stage of sleep called REM or rapid eye movement sleep which we'll chat about in a bit, no doubt. 
But the idea or the concept is that there's a lot of random things happening and we are just contextualizing what's happened to us. So it can be what we've experienced, emotions, what we've learned related to knowledge, all of these things. And that's why dreams do seem a bit odd and chaotic. Mm. And often it's our sleep is our time to process. It's the one time when we literally let our guard down and a huge amount of processing happens um, emotionally and cognitively. And therefore all of these little connections that are happening can flick up as little sort of bits yeah. of dream so it's probably quite functional although i'm sure that other people might disagree that there's the <laughs> like a sort of romanticized dream, but, then, but okay so if it's functional are there some studies that have related the success of dreams which is a, which is only measurable i assume in like the length and the depth potentially of REM sleep no but has anyone related I dream, therefore there's some outcome that's measurable on the other side when I'm awake that would indicate that it does have that function. So not directly between dreaming and outcome, but certainly between REM sleep yeah. and outcome. So I'm going to make that quick distinction here. Um, I don't know if it's a good uh, opportunity maybe just to jump into the sleep stages yeah, so, yeah, the, so yeah. you can understand REM sleep. Yeah, because at the end of the day, I mean, the short message is, is that without REM sleep, we don't survive. That's so, the deep sleep. No, no, no. So REM is rapid. I'm even, let me quickly explain yeah. how this goes. Yeah. So um, based on the activity in the brain, we have different levels of sleep. So we start the night in what we call stage one. So it's non-REM stage one, and it's super light sleep. And if I tap you on the shoulder, I go, hey, Ross, wake up. You'll go, no, I promise you I wasn't asleep. So that's me for the first how long after my head hits the pillow? And the yeah, a couple. So a couple shouldn't be more than a couple of minutes. But you're lying there and you're in that transient. So you've, you're no longer awake. Your your brain has definitely dropped you into sleep, but it's so light that you can still perceive what's going on around mm -hmm. you, and you often don't actually feel like you're asleep, but technically you are. So we shouldn't spend more and than about five percent of our nights. Sorry, though, just just from a technical point of view, what characterizes that as opposed to relaxed but wake awake? I mean, what are you measuring to say you're actually asleep? Is, it, is there a change in my brainwave activity that's yeah. kicked in? Yeah, absolutely. Okay. So we, we change the, 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 the structure of the brainwaves changes. Uh -huh. And so it goes from being awake where there's a lot of busyness and the eyes are, are, are very alert and observing what's going on to a much more rhythmical pattern. So okay. it's still it's 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 not too dissimilar to being awake, mm. but it but it's different from an EEG perspective. Mm. Yeah, mm -hmm. totally. Okay. Okay. Then you drop down into stage two, so non-REM stage two, um, and this is a stage that is um, a little bit deeper. If you want to talk about it in terms of depth, I tap you on the shoulder now. You won't wake up, but your brain will alert, and I'll see that alerting in your EEG trace. So I'll know. Okay, he's known that he's heard the sound, so a dog might bark. Your brain registers that, but you don't move. You keep sleeping. And in fact, we spend about half our night, 50% of our night in stage two. So it's a very important um, part of our sleep for, for multiple reasons. Then you hopefully drop down into what's called stage three, which is um, N3 or slow wave or deep sleep. This is that classic. The person is absolutely unconscious. You can literally party around them, vacuum, whatever, and they don't move. Um, and that is a very specific state where you absolutely no longer are even filtering what's happening in your environment and your brain is doing this beautiful, long, sort of um, restorative sleep. We think that your N3 sleep is critical for physical repair and recovery. So as far as we understand, your immune system is super active then. And um, without N3, 
you su- you would suffer as an athlete for sure. You would mm. suffer from so many perspectives in terms of health and disease as well. Then anyway. And, and oh, you're going to the next phase. Yeah. Sorry. You're going to <laughs> so what what is happening in the brain? Like which areas of the brain are active in that moment as opposed to totally shut down? Because some must be. I mean, dormant, right? Not really. So, I mean, obviously things that are, so, so sleep's really strange because it's, um, even though a lot of perception, if you like, is, is not happening. So the areas in the brain that are responsible for sight and for sound and for your other senses, smell, mm-hmm. touch, those would have limited activity, but there's a huge amount of activity happening in terms of, um, mental processing, immune processing, uh, sort of physical repair and recovery. So it's actually, it's a highly active, organized, but very um, calm state that, mm. that, that the brain might be in. Unless, of course, we're in REM, which is rapid eye movement sleep, where that looks much more like being awake. And that's where we're about to go into from deep. Yeah, Is exactly. it always sequential? Does it always go one, two, three REM? Or can some people go one, two REM? Um, yes, you can. I'll explain how that can okay. happen in a sec. Okay. So you're going to come back to that. Sure. So after your slow wave sleep, you should then pop up and have a small burst of REM. So REM rapid eye movement sleep. That's where your brain is super active. It looks very much like an awake brain, but you have motor paralysis. So you're unable to move and act out clearly what's happening um, in the brain. So that's a very excitatory sort of um, state for you to be in. And so that transition from wake in one and two and three and up to REM is called a sleep cycle. That's one sleep cycle. And we usually throughout the night will have three, four, five sleep cycles, depending on how long you're going to sleep for. But um, And so you'll cycle between those, but the structure or the composition of the cycle changes a bit as the night goes by. So in the first half of the night, we do loads of deep sleep. So that's our restorative part of sleep. And the latter part of the night, the REM cycles get longer and longer, and we do more and more REM um, REM sleep. Mm. For a person who has very broken or disturbed sleep, they might keep bouncing out of N1, N3, and then coming up to N1. So they'll spend too much time in light sleep, which can be very, very unsatisfactory, non-restorative. And then the other things that can happen is we can – by a, a range of different mechanisms, which we can chat about, we can lose um, deep sleep and we can lose REM sleep. Um, and both of those have consequences for um, for us from a health perspective. REM sleep is what we understand to be critical for emotional um, and sort of social, I want to say repair and recovery, but I'm really also thinking about processing. Mm-hmm. And in fact, in animals, they've shown REM sleep to be so important that when animals are deprived of REM sleep, so every time they go into REM sleep, they'll be woken up and over the course of the experiment, weeks, months, the animals die. So it is that important. And in fact, with us, if we lose REM sleep, as might happen with certain medications, for example, then after that, when your body is given a chance to sleep normally, I say normally in inverted commas, then it'll prioritize REM sleep. And then REM sleep, will you'll go into what's called REM rebound. And that's where people say, oh my God, I'm dreaming like crazy. My sleep's so weird. It often happens after hospitalization, for example. Yeah. Um, and so your, that's your body paying back, catching up, getting this REM sleep packed back in again. So what's the cause of death in animals that are deprived of this stage? Do they just, they just die? Yeah, that's, that's trickier to understand. So we understand more about the why animals or creatures die on total sleep deprivation. And that in itself is fascinating. But when it comes to REM sleep deprivation, um, presumably there is something that is so built into our survival and it's probably from a cognitive mood, social perspective 
that without that REM sleep, we, we just don't function. If, uh, I'm, still, sorry. I'm still not entirely sure what the REM sleep advantage is. What, 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 do you, what are you saying is why, you, why the REM sleep is part of it? Because I understand why you need the restorative deep sleep, but why does REM exist and how does that yeah. assist you? Two, two major components, but also this is so open to change. And that, mm. This is what we know today. <laughs> we'll worry about what we don't know today. <laughs> Tomorrow. Time. Yeah. So think about psychological repair and recovery. So we have to have REM sleep to be stable. So this is an emotional... Yes. Okay. Very much your, so. Your brain chemistry. Yep. Okay. But there's probably quite a lot to do with um, with cognition as well that's happening in that REM stage. Although lots of our memory, we seem to be link it more with N2 sleep, um, but it happens across all the phases. But we think that there's probably the cognitive aspects of that as well. And then when you come out of sleep in the morning, let's say without an alarm clock, yeah, they, they always talk about the most creative part of your day is when you're coming out of that sleep and you're just becoming awake and you're sort of semi-conscious that I often have, I find I have the most biggest brain waves at that <laughs> speak, time. Speak for yourself. I do. I, I, I mean, I I'm, I'm not even out of that now. And it's <laughs> <laughs> but it is an interesting place. And I've read about this little phase as you, as you come out of sleep is the most sort of creative space that you can be in purely because your brain is the most cognitively re- reacting, but you're not dealing with any stresses of life. Yeah, I don't know. It probably depends where it is that you wake up because yeah. we, we sort of say like you can go crashing into your alarm clock and this might be what Ross experiences more often where you know he might actually still be getting some of his deeper sleep in for example but this wretched alarm goes and you wake and it's a terrible yeah. funk and terrible mm. place to wake from whereas if you wake off the back of a REM period or during a REM period it'll feel like you've just spent the whole night dreaming mm. but if you again if you're coming awake if you sort of wake past that and you sort of hit consciousness, then you can feel quite calm and relaxed. And so it's probably got more to do with where you are waking up. I mean, we process at nighttime. We process information. We put our thoughts and emotions together. We um, consolidate what we've learned. And we're free to do it at nighttime because we literally don't worry about anything else. In the daytime, we're busy and we've got to like multitask and get the stuff done that we need to do. Whereas at nighttime, you literally let your guard down and you do this processing. And so very often people will say, yeah, I woke in the middle of the night and this thought came to me or I suddenly had the answer to this and it doesn't have to be in the morning. It's just got to be probably off the back of a REM cycle where you have had the freedom to do this thinking Mm. and this processing that you need to do. Like walking into a room that you've tidied without knowing it and going, this makes sense. Yeah. (laughs) So if if you do, um, often in sports science and physiology, you'll know this as well, like studying things at the extremes is a really cool gateway to understand them. So sleep deprivation studies must have revealed some like remarkable things and it's no surprise that one of the, the torture methods would be to keep people sleep deprived what's the first thing that fails with sleep deprivation in <laughs> people um hallucinations and is yeah. that is that the body trying to to impose a, a REM sleep function on an awake person <laughs> that's a really good question so in the beginning, when the sleep deprivation research was done, it was very much in the domain of the sort of, a lot of it was done in the domain of the psychologists. Mm. And um, so for sure, what happens is with partial and then complete sleep deprivation, our bodies are quite good at functioning. They just keep ticking over, but our brains take a lot more strain and therefore our cognition. So it's usually sort of your thinking sort of ability and capacity that is mostly um, challenged. 
And if you have ever been like when you undergo jet lag, for example, that's a nice example of acute sleep deprivation plus the time shift and whatever. Yeah, your body feels a bit crusty and you need to sleep, but actually you just feel dull in the head. Yeah. And we all know that. So yeah. definitely that's the sort of the, 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 the primary, but now there, there are other things that are happening physically, but they take longer to manifest. So in the short term, it is very much that. And the experiments where they've kept, sorry, those are not um, experiments. In yeah, the instances yeah. where yeah. humans have decided to keep themselves awake for extended periods of time, um, it's emotional changes. So often paranoia, depression, um, don't trust things and people around you start to not be able to think clearly or rationally. So they're very much cognitive changes and emotional changes that happen well before the body starts to shut down. Mm. In the sleep deprivation studies that they've done in animals, because of course that's um, easier to conduct, what they've shown is that when they keep the animals awake for however long until they die, the, um, the time to death ranges from like five to 33 days, which in itself is interesting because it means that each little creature... Within an animal or do bigger animals last longer? No, with, or that's a, uh, good question, but it's within an animal. So okay, for example, okay. in rats yeah. or in mice. So that tells me that there's loads of inter-individual variability in terms of resistance to sleep deprivation. That makes sense because some of us are useless at sleep deprivation and others are actually quite fine. Mm. And the other thing is that multiple systems within the body fail. And so in this animal, it was the lungs. And in this one, it was the heart. And there, there was the brain. And here it was a reproductive system. And oh. so I think that's cool because it means that multiple systems are susceptible to the effects of sleep deprivation, mm. but they don't all come up at the same way in the same creatures. Mm. When you talk about the sleep cycles, I know that there are some athletes that have got these, uh, these light alarms where basically a light comes on and it makes the room brighter and brighter. And then the idea is that you, your body then recognizes, hang on, it's actually daytime. And I think they use these a lot in, overseas in the UK during winter, for instance. Can you, is, is that a way of shifting that natural waking up, not in the middle of deep sleep, so that your body goes, hang on, I'm recognizing via my eyelids that it's getting lighter and therefore I will come out of my sleep feeling better. And yeah. always do those, those light alarms work? So actually, they're one of the few things out there that I really do like and that I do think work, but for they need to use them for the correct reason. So whether or not they can get you to wake off the back of um, the correct part in your sleep cycle, I'm not 100% sure, because at the end of the day, the best way for us to wake is just to wake naturally mm. without an alarm and whatever. But of course, light is the problem. So what we need is darkness when we're sleeping because that allows our body to produce a hormone called melatonin, which signals night phase to the body. And then we need the light to increase gently in the morning because that then signals a transition for our body from sleep to wake. It's very mm. powerful. Mm. And so for, as you quite correctly mentioned, um, places where you're very far north or south mm. and your um, day length is very skewed and you want to wake up easily at like seven when the sun is coming up much later, mm. then those light boxes or light alarms are super effective at signaling to your body that it's time to shift. Yeah, so, so they are basically trying to minimize seasonal variations and keep your, maybe this is a good segue into circadian rhythms and the suprachiasmatic nucleus and stuff. <laughs> I love that stuff, by the way. Um, I don't so, even know how to say it. So, that's, so what they're trying to do there is say that we want minimal disruption from winter to summer. Yeah. Let's keep our routines the same. Absolutely. Is there so, a higher, we've got a lot of listeners in Scandinavia and so on, I know from a patron. Hold up. 
What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Is there a high prevalence of sleep disorders in the northern um, latitudes? Definitely sleep difficulties. And I'm going to use that as opposed to sleep disorders because that's yeah. probably slightly different. Okay. So for sure, seasonal. And in fact, there's a condition called SAD, seasonal affective disorder, which mm. is a circadian related disorder. It's ideal acronym, isn't it? Yeah, I know. <laughs> I thought that was just the weather. No, well, but think about it. So that's yeah. going to extend not only to other mood issues, but when yeah. there's persistent darkness and you sure. don't, so we need light for a functional circadian system. Yeah. And that has effects on all sorts of aspects of our body from uh, mood and, and whatever, all the way through to physiology. Mm. So, um, yeah, the, there probably there are many more difficulties, but the, the biggest thing is just entrainment because we're designed to be um, through our circadian system. Let me just quickly go back one half a step here. Mm. So essentially, your body can tell the time, yes. and that's important because we live in an environment where there's a twenty-four hour period, twenty-four hour day, and we have a period of light and a period of dark, and we have seasons as well. Mm. And we are designed as humans; we're diurnal. We're supposed to be active when the sun is up, and we're meant to be uh, resting when the sun is down. And the set, so that goes for physical activity, brain work, eating, all sorts of things. We can go in a rabbit hole there later. Sure. But um, the idea is that we have evolved to be sensitive to the sunlight. Yeah. And Ross mentioned the suprachiasmatic nucleus in a minute now. But um, essentially, there's a little pathway that goes from your eyes to that region in the brain, which can tell your brain, okay, it's daytime or it's nighttime. So the light message travels there. And then that part of the brain sends a message to another little part of the brain, which makes the hormone melatonin. And then melatonin is your messenger. And then it goes all over the body at nighttime saying, guys, it's nighttime down tools, or it gets squashed down in the morning. And the absence of melatonin tells your body, guys, wake up. It's time to be um, up and going. So we have to have light for the circadian rhythmicity to work because our body clocks get set every single day. Because mm. the, 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 the crazy part is that we each have an innate circadian rhythm. It should be 24 hours in, in length. In the absence of light. In the absence of light. Right. It's actually it's just, oh, light, yeah. yeah, it's, yeah. but our rhythm is longer than 24 hours. It's 24 hours, 11 minutes, plus or minus standard deviation okay. of about 17. Sure. So if I put you in a cave and I let you just I take away all time cues, your 24-hour rhythm or your day, night, wake, eat cycle is going to just shift out shift a tiny out bit every phase, day. Yeah. It's going to go slightly out of phase. Yeah. And so we have to be re-entrained by light every day. So we're pulling ourselves back to this 24 hours. And the actual phase is largely determined by some genes. So we won't worry about that too much now, which is why some of us have longer rhythms and therefore we're more likely to be night owls maybe. And some of us have shorter rhythms and therefore we're more likely to be morning people. But we need this light to re-entrain our rhythm on a, on a daily basis. Mm. So that, that light is critical. So in the countries where they don't have, um, where they have very long nights or short mm. days and then vice versa, they need to use supplemental light in winter to help to entrain their rhythm correctly. And, and they need curtains. to block out exactly mm. Wouldn't it be fascinating to do a study of athletes that live closer to the equator and work out whether they have, because they have more routine in their sleep, whether they are more successful 
I mean, I don't know whether there's... I'm sure there's no research in that area now, but it is fascinating to think that if you live closer to the equator, you're less disrupted by seasonal um, night and day. Yeah, so potentially... Cape Town compared to Durban, for instance, there's a difference in our circadian rhythms compared to if somebody lives in Durban, which is 2,000 kilometers away. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, we've got some studies just done in non-athletes, but a little bit in athletes as well, which shows really clearly that um, circadian rhythmicity looks different depending on where you live. So, I mean, for the obvious reasons that we've chatted about that. Um, So it really shifts the timing of your Mm. sleep because of the light that you're exposed Mm. to. So you naturally move into an earlier or later pattern which can have consequences. So we did some research some years ago, it was quite cool in, um, in endurance and ultra endurance athletes. And we looked at sleep and circadian rhythmicity. And because in South Africa, we have this um, culture that endurance exercise must be early in the morning. Yes. We're primarily escaping heat, primarily. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, but so often for a bike race, you need to be up at 4.30 if you're gonna to get to a venue and be ready to race at six, for example. And um, so that's all very good and well if you're a morning person and it's awful if you're an evening person. I second that. Yeah, I'm sure you do. Uh, the worst thing about cycling is mornings. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. Because I'm, I'm the owl gene. That's yeah. where we're going with this. We're going to how yeah. circadian rhythms actually select people for sport. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So, in fact, we, we observed that. So, because we looked at um, Ironmen and then runners, cyclists, and then guys who go to the gym just to be fit, but they don't really do any competitive stuff, yeah. or whatever. So, they're just active. And then we looked mm-hmm. at couch potatoes as well. Was there a rugby player cohort? Yeah, well? we looked at rugby. Your jet lag work, I remember that. Yeah, yeah, we did that as well. So, we looked yeah. at team sports too. So, typically, in, in any given population, if we were to, we, we call this chronotyping, if we were to decide, are you an owl or a lark? Or, in fact, where are you on that spectrum of owl, owlishness to larkishness? Mm. We would see a good old bell-shaped distribution. So most people are actually well, neither types. define what owls and larks are yeah, yes. so you know. So okay, cool. Genes. We are going yeah. there. I yeah, think I know what it is, but <laughs> just explain it for <laughs> our listeners. Cool. So this is your um, affinity for mornings or evenings, and it's affinity for them in terms of when do you want to be awake, when do you want to be asleep, when would you like to do mental work that is quite tough, when would you like to do physical work that is possibly quite demanding too. And so um, those of us who are morning types will be... Um, those are larks. Those are the larks. Yeah. We are easily up early, prefer to exercise in the morning, wake up with an appetite. We're hungry. We're quite happy to have breakfast and lunch. By the end of the day, we're pretty useless. Uh, don't ask us to do any hard thinking at the end of the day. That's and me. <laughs> we are done and dusted close to when the sun goes down. And then the owls, um, like Ross is identifying here hugely. I, I just want to point out that when I was at the university, there was a study on the genes, and I was an extreme outlier in both the behavior yeah. and the genetic. Yes, I was. Remember? Yeah, that? yeah, yeah, yeah. And um, so, so the, the and, and so the piece I don't know if you're getting there is that when we talk about our lark, we're talking behavior, really preference. Yes. But there is a genetic basis Completely. that interacts with that preference, and then it's in, it's in, it's another one of those things that's almost trained by social behaviors, norms, Very much so. But, but the genetics is for me also especially fascinating. Yeah. So sorry to interrupt. No, absolutely. So we have these, yeah. um, a set of clock genes. Yeah. So basically the short of it is, is that every single cell in your body can tell the time. Um, sure. And that is through a little molecular network of clock genes and they oscillate between the genes and the proteins and it's on a little 24-hour um, time or clock basis. And so that molecular clock is primarily your, your master clock. So you've got to have an, a conductor of this orchestra here that sits in your suprachiasmatic nuclei, mm. but it has to coordinate every single other clock. Because can you imagine if every cell in your body was on a different time? It would be a disaster. Yeah. You'd have a lot of desynchronization. So it all has to be coordinated. That's one of the jobs of melatonin, by the way. 
So there's some studies that have been done to show that variants in these clock genes can predispose people to being more morning or evening types. So I used to think my brother was just a lazy git because he couldn't get up in the morning and he seemed to waft around at nighttime and just, I don't know what he did. Turns out he, like Ross, is very much an evening type and he has the the the, the variants that are predisposing him to that. Yeah, Whereas, so it's just three, what was the gene called? Am we I were not? looking at, it's the, called the PER3 um, uh, yes. VNTR polymorphism. Don't worry about yeah. that too much. But you <laughs> and, get three variants. Yeah, yeah, you get a combination of variants. And, yeah. yeah, and if you have one of the alleles, the four allele, you're more likely to be an evening type and a five allele means, makes right. you more likely to be a morning type. And so in fact, when we looked at the, um, I'll jump back to the, to the sports yeah. people that we looked at, not only were our endurance um, sport athletes very biased towards being morning type, but there was also a predominance of this five allele, which mm, is the so, so one of the variants that predicts morningness. So that was crazy because it said two things. Firstly, that um, morning types were just more prevalent yeah. in this population, but also those who had the genetic tendency to be more morning behavior had stuck, cho presumably chosen and stuck with the sport. Mm. Um, because you would have thought that chronotype, your ability to be a morning or evening person, surely that can be modified by behavior. Well, that was my next question. Yeah. To yeah. a degree, and to a degree it would be. Yes, totally. But uh, at, a, at some point, it probably creates one more barrier that might select out people who yeah. don't pursue that and who rather find something that's a little bit easier for them to do. Totally. Yeah. So in fact, we compared yeah. our population to a Dutch um, group of marathon runners because we thought... Start at 9.30. Yeah, day. in yeah. fact, the average marathon start time is 11 a.m., which yeah. is completely different to what we see. Yeah. And so we thought, well, let's see what's going on there. So their chronotype was still a little shifted towards morningness, which is unusual in itself because most people are somewhere in the middle, mm. actually. And these extreme morning and evening types are actually quite uncommon. Um, but they had the prevalence of the four allele, which is the evening associated gene, which is common all over the world, really. Mm. So most populations will have more tendency of, towards this yeah. eveningness. Um, and so they didn't have this genetic selection, sort of, yeah. if you like. So in other words, the Dutch marathon running population looks like more any normal. other normal population. Whereas if you showed someone population x and you yeah say, Gee, that's actually an extreme morning type there's a good chance that's the south african yes or any other hot climate maybe yeah yeah, yeah. definitely yeah, for, i mean for those of you listening around the world we, we, in south africa almost all the races running cycling races and a lot of other events adventure races they all start at ridiculous times of the morning purely because first of all they need to make sure there's not too many cars on the road second of all there's heat to consider especially yeah. in areas um, of South Africa. And, and, and if and that race starts at six, you're waking up at four because yeah. you have to eat, yeah. you have to drive to the venue. Yeah. I mean, it's nuts. I, that's, that's running two half marathons is the only time I see the sunrise. <laughs> 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 and so I can attest to the fact that you and have to What be, you're both uh, saying though is that around the world that is that is not the same because no. we know that for instance cycling, uh, the Tour de France for instance, that starts at 11 o'clock in the morning, isn't it? Yeah. So, so they, they yeah, start, they, they're only time. finishing in the evening. Yeah. And so it's unusual that that, that happens around you see, the world. You know we see this play out quite dramatically and inconveniently as the Olympics every four years because they force the start times early for the US TV audiences when it's in Asia. Yeah. Remember in Beijing, yeah. they had the Olympic swimming finals at like a crazy time because they wanted it in prime time America. Yeah. And so those athletes had to then start to anticipate, and that's where we'll go next, I'm sure, is that performance then varies during the circadian function, Absolutely. circadian cycle. 
And so those U.S. swimmers were habituating themselves to swimming fast at 9 a.m. where they normally wouldn't do that. Yeah. But even actually along those lines, a lot of sports swimming and athletics where you have heats and then semis and yeah, then finals. Twice a day thing. You often, twice a day, and often your heats are mornings. And mm. very often for mm. television rights, actually, finals mm. are typically in the latter part of the day. Right. Yeah. So that in itself is complex. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. So just, I mean, just, I mean, now we're going to talk a lot more about lots of elements of the sleep thing, but I'm fascinated <laughs> by this lark owl thing. So you're saying there is a way for people to adapt, even if they have this evening gene versus the morning gene. So it's not impossible to change behavior. No. I mean, Ross is an example of somebody that actually is almost forced to change behavior. Otherwise, he's going to be riding in his own most yeah. of the time. <laughs> so if you think about owls and larks, that they're on a spectrum. Yeah. Because we're not in a box. We speak yeah. about our locks because we can understand the differences. But don't forget, most people are somewhere in the middle as neither types. But if we imagine the spectrum, and if you are a Ross and you're an extreme evening type, you can for sure shift through conditioning a little bit to be less of an evening type mm. or potentially the other way a little bit, but there's probably not much to go that way. Yeah. So we can condition you a little bit that way, but you're never going to hop into the category of being a morning type or an extreme morning type. It's too much against your biology. Mm. So that conditioning can happen provided there's a stimulus and the stimulus, I mean, people who go in the old days, people used to go to the army and they will often tell you that is when I changed because I had to be yeah. up at this time. I'm then sure I was physically active. Totally. Yeah, absolutely. So you shift for sure yeah. because you're forced to shift. But as soon as you remove the stimulus, you will revert immediately back to your natural state. Yeah. So it's almost like the path of least resistance. Yeah. yeah. In other words, if you are an owl person, you're forced through circumstance to be a lark in the morning. Is the, are you always going to be up against it in terms of being able to perform? Yeah. Yes. Yes. Yeah. Are you? Absolutely. Yeah, so that's Ross, where, Ross that's yesterday, where, you know, an hour into the ride, he's hauled out his uh, little uh, red ambulance out the back pocket. <laughs> and, and I'm thinking you've got a, he's having a Coke at 7 o'clock in the morning because Ross says he can't eat at that time. Yeah. So he has to get the sugar in at uh, quarter past seven in the morning. Mike, what you couldn't see was I was basically in REM sleep five minutes before that. <laughs> yeah, totally. <laughs> Ross bike, was asleep. We were, we were that's, why, that's why it's so fascinating is to think that we were, if you're going against your genetic makeup, yeah. are you always in disadvantage as an athlete or any kind of sports? Yeah. Well, I mean, the, the variance in performance from morning to evening in a person is already large. It's and then huge. you overlay that above this, on top of this chronotype and preference, the, the performance variation is significant enough that it's probably often decisive in sports. Yeah, I, I would think so. Yeah. yeah. And sure. I mean, yeah, it, it's a bit complicated because I think in untrained people, the differences would be far bigger as we usually see that. Right. By the time you yeah. get to the super trained people, they've kind of so selected to be there anyway. You know, there's a lot of stuff that's happened. So it's possibly a little bit less, but there's some really nice evidence which has looked at training time of day and adaptation. And I love that. So looking at mm. um, a, a spectrum of athletes training either mornings or evenings, depending on where they're gonna go. And I mean, the short of it is, is that if you looked at everybody, the traditional teaching is that sports performance is better in the afternoon, evening for a range of reasons. But they, they link it to body temperature, which is a myth, but it is higher in the afternoons. Mm. They say you've got better, better uh, flexibility, strength and coordination, um, uh, all sorts of things. Um, and so often that that's the teaching that we perform better in the evening. But when you look at performance, it's called diurnal variation in performance, so difference between morning and evening. And you say, well, what happens to an evening type or a morning type? Then what we notice is that, yes, it's dependent on your chronotype and your genotype. So 
an evening person will probably perform better in the evening and a morning person will probably perform better in the evening, which is against the textbook teaching. Mm. But you couple on top of that training time of day Mm. and that sends it even more in one direction or another. So a morning type who trains in the morning is going to be so much faster in the morning and therefore better suited to morning competition. Whereas an evening type who trains in the morning is just going to squash out that difference between morning and evening variation, which means that they will probably then be able to cope better with the morning competition. Because you've got to train at the time of day that you're going to race. Yeah, for sure. But that evening type must do evening sessions because they can probably work a lot harder at those evening sessions. So they need that combination mm. so that they get better adaptation, mm. if that makes so sense. So what's, what's, what's interesting there, sorry, Ross, is, is that there are obviously other factors that affect performance in the evening, for instance. So if you've been sitting at your desk all day and your your body's in a sort of cramped space, you've got to, you know, sometimes I find people, you know, people go running in the evening, they struggle because they've been sitting in a desk all day. So do you, how do you measure performance in the evening? Is And you're saying things like body temperature is higher, therefore you're, you know, potentially better at performing. <laughs> but there are other factors that are not related to I know sleep. Dale's the expert but like I'll give you my perspective yeah. on that as one of those people is if I'm sitting in my chair at five o'clock in the afternoon I can't wait to go running and I don't struggle at all to go don't you don't find it a bit tight no 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 it's like mm. it's the most pleasurable thing I've done all day yeah um so so I think your experience of that physical challenge which which I'm sure is true for a lot of people yeah is probably also influenced by your preference for when you train and what you're yeah. accustomed mm. to because I, I didn't battle with it at all. I'll tell you when it's a struggle is if you've been on your feet all day because you're doing mm. some, and then you're actually just physically tired mm. because the hour of exercise is actually your eighth hour of activity. That's yeah. different. Yeah. yeah. So obviously when you do experiments to compare this morning and evening performance, you try and control as many factors as you can. Yeah. So you have to think about nutrition because it's very different coming off a fasted state of being asleep versus the fed state that's at the end one. of the day. Right. So that's huge. Mm. And then you have to look at, of course, um, the amount of training that you've done in the last 24 hours hours and these kind of things you try and control those things and even when we do get that control and of course the sleep you've had as well um relatively Mm. right we still see these this big diurnal variation in performance Mm. so the short of it is that um evening types do better to train in the evening and of course they're going to be better off competing in the evening but if they're going to have a morning competition that they need to be up for, they have got to have morning training sessions. Mm. Just not crack of dawn. You wouldn't go and say, okay, listen, in the gym at six. But you could certainly say, what about seven or eight? That would be a better mm. compromise. I mean, the, the, the take-home message for listeners is that just as you would think ahead to how hot will it be, the altitude, the distance that you have to prepare your body for, you have to prepare for the diurnal challenge. That's, yeah. what, that's yeah. what we're saying. And like when, when Kipchoge did the sub two in that gimmicky successful one in Vienna and um, Monza, remember they started yeah. in the dark and there was some talk then that they'd, they'd chosen to start that earlier than usual in part for the temperature, but because he was just accustomed to going up at 5.30 yeah. in the morning for that long run. So we'll right. do it then and not nine o'clock like London starts. Exactly. So, so exactly. people do think about this all the time and especially for the Olympics where you've got time zones, jet lag to deal with, plus potentially scheduling broadcast stuff. It's a really fascinating area of unlocked, well, I'm sure the best people are unlocking it, but many people wouldn't think about it. Mm. So it's amazing how people who get up early always perceive to be, uh, have more, are more driven than people who are, 
<laughs> night people because they are, oh, well, I got up early. I went, I got up at five o'clock and you read all these self-help books about all the CEOs who wake up at four o'clock in the morning. So there's, there's this perception of early risers being more successful people than people who are evening yeah. staying up people. Yeah, which is absolutely which untrue. Is, There's, untrue. Yeah, the, the history's got loads of people who are extreme night owls mm. um, that, so they just look lazy because they're not up, but yeah. they're incredibly productive at the end of the day and at nighttime. And so in fact, yeah, the early bird catching the worm is a terrible, terrible <laughs> disservice yeah. to the evening people. <laughs> yeah. Who wants worms anyway? Yeah. <laughs> the, other, the other thing just on that that Mike reminded me of is there was a, I hope it was a fad. Maybe some people still do it, where they do like intermittent sleeping. Ooh. And some of those Silicon Valley type venture capital guys that are often at the front of what they love to call life hacks. They, yeah. You know what I'm talking yeah, about. Yeah, yeah. And they did this thing where like they wouldn't sleep for an eight-hour block. They'd do an hour and a half and then wake up at two in the morning and then work till 3.30 and then do an hour and a half. And then, mm. I mean, like every everything I know, which is admittedly very little, says this is a terrible idea. Mm. So that yeah, definitely makes my toes curl. Um, there, there are a couple of trains of thought here though. Um, when you hear about those extreme guys and, and history is full of, um, incredible people who actually stepped like that anyway. Mm. Um, Thomas Edison was, a, we call them polyphasic sleepers okay. where you would do, um, a 20 minute naps every four hours, for Wasn't example. Churchill also a weird yeah. sleeper? Yeah. yeah. He was an extreme night owl. Mm. Totally. So what very often happens, uh, there's confusion. These people are probably trying to get away with as little sleep as possible. So they're kind of sleeping in response to can't stay awake, got to sleep now, as opposed to what's the best way for me to sleep. Now, our understanding from an evolutionary perspective is that we die diurnal and we've designed to have one consolidated nocturnal sleep. There are some people who say, ah, but there were certain people like in the hunter-gatherer days that had to tend the fire and therefore they did break their sleep into two. Mm. That is very different to be awake for 15 to 30 minutes to stoke a fire in the middle of the night is completely different to sleeping at random periods throughout the day and throughout the night and then not accumulating that um, whatever it is that your sleep sweet spot mm -hmm. need is. I think that's really different. So it's super clear. We are designed for um, unbroken, consolidated nocturnal sleep and one. And what about also speaking of, and this is not even an unusual pattern, the old afternoon nap. Uh, and athletes, I was just going to talk about this. <laughs> same wavelength. This, this, we're flowing here. Even though we're in different spaces. Yeah. Um, athletes do it. Yeah. I know the Kenyans are morning trainers, midday trainers, afternoon nap, evening trainers. Three mm -hmm. a day, if mm -hmm. they're doing that cycle. So what, I mean, there must be loads of research. In this. Yeah, I love napping. I love the, I love the concept of napping. So I always say you need a nap license because... Rule number one, you have to get this, as much sleep as you can humanly get that's practical at nighttime. So you aren't allowed to nap and then um, forfeit your, your nighttime sleep. So nighttime sleep must be intact. Yeah. And only then, if you still have a greater sleep need than what you can accomplish at nighttime, are you permitted to have a nap. So athletes, absolutely. Nothing better than that afternoon nap on the couch or on your bed after a hard training session. Mm -hmm. And athletes, and, and the reason that athletes would need to nap is that you physically cannot get the hours that you need at nighttime because hours um, athletes have a higher sleep need than non-athletes. People who are sick, of course, need to have a higher sleep need. Napping will come into place, recovering from surgery operations. New parents dealing with um, broken sleep thanks to kids. They get a nap license and shift workers will get a nap license, of course. But on and, the whole, illness. I mean, like so, illness. COVID. I think totally. Um, 
to be current is is probably doing the same. Yes. Uh, yes. Chronic fatigue type stuff because of residual. Because your PhD actually to, to deviate slightly was on <laughs> athletes who failed to adapt, presumably because of a viral infection that was still sticking around. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. 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 So okay. Yeah. Okay. So for an athlete to nap, that's probably fine, but you can't do five hours of sleep at nighttime, put in hectic training sessions and then wonder why you need to nap. Like mm -hmm. get the nocturnal sleep right first to the best of your ability and then top up with a nap if you need it. And the length of the nap? That's also a good question. It depends <laughs> what you're trying to do. Um, if you are, um, if you're trying to like an athlete or a person who's not well, for example, and you're trying to properly rack up more sleep, it needs to be longer. So we look, it can be anything from one to three hours. Mm. Um, it can be long, um, but as long as it doesn't then change your bedtime. Yeah. The minute that then it then shifts your bedtime later, that means you've had too much sleep in that daytime, you're not tired, and that's then a problem. So you've got to watch is, that. Is there a, because I mean, we've all fallen asleep on the couch or reading a book or something, <laughs> and then you wake up sometimes 20 minutes later, sometimes an hour and a half later, and sometimes you wake up and you honestly feel like you've been drugged. Yeah. Just terrible for the, for the next two hours. Yeah. Is that is that related to like you've napped so long or aggressively <laughs> that you've actually gone into a phase of sleep that you didn't want to be in? Or does it, do you care? Um, probably a little bit in that you've probably woken up off the back, out of some very deep sleep, which is incredibly disorienting and yeah. it feels horrible. Um, if you're short on deep sleep and your body's put that into your nap, it's done that for a reason. We also see that with REM sleep. If you're short on REM sleep, your napping can often have REM in it as well, mm. which is kind of bizarre too. Also not nice to wake up off that. But um, when you get people that are power napping, so the power naps are the short naps, like yeah. 5, 10, 15, 20 minutes max. Generally, again, those are generally to try to get rid of the fatigue in your brain so that you can cognitively and mentally be more mm. alert. And that is helpful. But again, if you're doing that at the and then but you're misbehaving with your nighttime sleep, then I would say sort that out first, get rid of the power naps, get that mm -hmm. nighttime sleep right. And then only in certain circumstances where you absolutely couldn't get that right in the night, you're entitled to a quick power nap just yeah. to recharge. So the interesting thing about that is they talk about the difference between professional and good amateur athletes is the, is, the, is the rest and the sleep rather than the training because a lot of very good amateurs are training in terms of time as much as a, as a, a half-decent pro. But, the, the, but, the, but they don't have the sleep in the afternoon because they're working or their parents or whatever. Yeah, totally. It, it's, such, it's, it's difficult because we know, now know. So the, we spoke about different modes of studies in that. And in the, in the past, they would do all these sleep deprivation studies. And now we're looking at the other side. We're saying, well, what about when we extend sleep, what happens? Uh, like, which is a really cool way to look at it. Mm. And How so, do you do that? How do you extend sleep? Do you just force the person over weeks to wake up later? Yeah, or, or go to bed earlier, but you, you increase their sleep opportunity. So sleep oh, opportunity is your time in bed yeah. that, that you have. And the ridiculous thing about, we're going off on a tangent here, but that's cool. Yeah, With the um, sleep extension studies, you would think like, how can I take these people that are sleeping X and ask them to aim for that? Like surely they're going to lie there and twiddle their thumbs and not be able to sleep. And this has been done quite a lot in athletes, but very often because they're typically sleep deprived anyway, when you extend their sleep, they, they, they just they gobble that. it all up yeah. and mm. that sleep just gets used. Um, and then that's had positive effects on performance. So the key oh. is that sleep is critical for repair and recovery, physical repair and recovery, and therefore adaptation. 
adaptation to training. So if you were an elite athlete or even an amateur athlete who's got some serious performance aspirations, you're doing 12 to 20 hours of training a week, you really just have to build your life around sleep opportunities. Absolutely. Without compromising social life and relations and everything else in your life that yeah. you can't set aside. But, uh, but it's often why super athletes become quite two-dimensional correct, because yeah. they can only, there's only space for a few things. Yeah. There's 24 hours in a day. What are you going to drop? Yeah. <laughs> out, of, out of interest, what's the, what's the mechanism by which they feel the need for more sleep? Does anyone know? So, in the brain, like what's telling the melatonin? I mean, because you no, think it's all the probably, stuff you've spoken about probably cytokines. Okay. Probably. So when you train a lot, you get a lot of inflammation, which yeah. is part of the adapt. We need that to stimulate adaptation yeah. and high cytokine level. It's the same as when you're sick. You speak about coronavirus now, cytokines go up. That immediately makes you feel sleepy. It's a way that to signal to your body, shut down, sleep, because I need to repair and recover. Mm. So it's probably linked to that. Can you suppress cytokines using any mechanisms like drugs? Not that you'd want to, but I'm just, <laughs> just curious. It's anti-inflammatories? Yeah, they, absolutely. So I'm nervous. This is on, an, on another little thing. but um, And again, the, the evidence needs to be looked at. But time of day when you take anti-inflammatories is surely really important. Because yeah. you're going to be, I mean, we know that, that from an athlete's perspective, you need to adapt. So you want to be careful about when you take anti-inflammatories mm. so you don't suppress adaptation. Mm. But your immune system has a cyclical process to it, of course. So... Um, if I can just go on this, because this is probably going to answer that yeah, question yeah, to yeah, some yeah. extent. So your immune system works differently at day and night, i.e. wake and sleep, which I think is really interesting. It's not entirely black and white like this, but for the most part, when we awake in the daytime, the part of the immune system that is active is the part that defends you against inhaled or ingested or absorbed pathogens. So it's busy doing all of that, which makes sense because we're exposed. Mm -hmm. Whereas at nighttime, it shifts roles and that's your adaptive immune system comes yeah. into play. And that part of your immune system makes the, um, um, the antibodies that you need to defend against the viruses and it kills mute, damaged or mutated cells and it does all this repair and recovery. So there's actually a lot of inflammation that happens at nighttime. We need inflammation. So for me, I would think that taking inflammatories before bedtime mm. is not a great idea because you could inadvertently be suppressing the, yeah, mm. exactly. Mm. Well, so so another, I mean, we've, we've covered anti-inflammatories on this podcast yeah, a few times mm. and we almost always say don't take them. Yeah. So here's another reason in that list. <laughs> I mean, what's what, what's interesting about what, what you're both saying is what you were saying why why would you suppress the body's response to want to sleep more? Well, there are times what's the when benefit of that. Mm. Like when? So, well, certain athletes who are you know that they're going to be exposed to sleep deprivation for a period of time might, and then their occupations. The military, I would imagine, is probably the leader of sleep deprivation mm -hmm. studies because mm -hmm. of performance requirements. Totally. And so, what do it's people do? Death. You're going to yeah. rely on something like caffeine, yeah. so stimulants, because. So caffeine competes for binding with adenosine. And as adenosine builds up in the brain, you feel sleepy and tired. And if you can outcompete adenosine binding, you will have less of that signal of feeling sleepy or tired. And so mm. that's the mechanism. That's why caffe I mean, athletes ca ca love caffeine. Caffeine is a, st a stimulant and it might be an urban legend, but amphetamines were invented to keep pilots awake in the war. And that's, the, that's just a more powerful caffeine. Totally. So there would be times when your life depended upon not sleeping. So yeah. you need to get yourself yeah. an espresso machine in the morning. Just gives you a little jolt <laughs> yeah. before you will run out, before you ride out the door. Really, doesn't just it? Mainline it straight into my veins. <laughs> but the but the just on that, I mean, some people are immune to caffeine. It doesn't affect them, and that's another example of how you can talk about principles that are present in typical people, and then someone listening to this will go, 
I have two shots before bed every night and I sleep like a baby. Yeah, well, you're been... another example of individual variation. Right? Yeah, and but also the difference there is that going to sleep, so caffeine doesn't interfere with the sleep process. That's the beauty of it. So caffeine doesn't, when you fall asleep, there's yeah. literally a, a, a set of switches in your brain that must be flicked. And for those to happen, you go from wake to sleep. Caffeine doesn't interfere with that process no, at all. It happens later. No, caffeine interferes with your sensation of being tired or not. Okay. So if you are, if, if you've got, um, if you've used a stimulant and you're feeling amped, behaviorally, you don't feel like going to sleep because you're feeling amped. So but the signals hurt. are confusing. But if you actually were to try to sleep, you might be able to. It's, it's not like it's necessarily going to change the, 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 that flick. So that's why. The, remember the cyclists used to speak, was it Willie Foote's book about white ceiling fever? They used, oh. <laughs> to take, they used to take those cocktails that included amphetamines and then lie in the hotel room looking at the ceiling all night. Yeah, yeah. Okay, yeah. but yeah, that, that, but that's but on I mean, a different level. mega powerful drugs. That's on a different level, yeah. totally. And that's probably having way different effects in the brain than what we're talking right. about now. Yeah. Do we know, I mean, this is obviously a subject that I'd imagine is on the same spectrum of larks versus owls. This classic example of you need eight hours of sleep mm -hmm. a night. Yeah, where, where, are we, where are we with the I, with the research on that? I always no. thought that was like eight hours of sleep, three, three liters of water. I always thought they were both generic sweeping statements. They are, completely. Yeah. But um, it's a cool question because it is really important. So there's two parts to sleep. There's sleep duration and there's sleep quality. And we'll look at quality separately. But duration mm. is important because at the end of the day, if you're getting two hours a night, you're in trouble. You know, and okay. if you're getting 14 hours a night, there's something wrong. Mm. Okay, I'm, obviously, I'm using the extremes. Yeah. So the current guidelines are based on all the available evidence that is linked um, with sleep duration and physical health, as well as mental health. The suggestions are that most people need seven to nine hours per night. But wait, there's a bell-shaped distribution, of course, which I love. Mm. And so that, that's where the eight comes from, because it happens to be in the middle. Right. But there's seven hours. But the guidelines also say that for some people, six is sufficient. For others, ten is necessary. So actually, there's a four-hour range, which I think is super interesting. Yeah. And we all have different sleep needs. So mm. I know I'm on the nine-hour side, because I don't do... Like with seven, you sleep-deprive me. With nine, I'm replete. Mm. Whereas other people, it's five to sleep to deprive and seven for repletion. So it's completely different depending on what your needs are. And then your needs change. So as your training load goes up, your sleep need goes up. Our needs are even different in seasons. So mm. we have a longer sleep need for some reason in winter than in summer. So these things are all really important. So the um, short of it is that you've got to find your sleep sweet spot. And it's mm. somewhere on that spectrum. But the people who consistently go less than six or who need more than 10, those people are kidding themselves that they're that all is well. Believe mm, me, mm. It, down the line, there'll be consequences. And how good are people at self-diagnosing their sleep quality in particular? I ask because I've like, and, and we'll get onto this, I guess, because wearable tech offers the promise of monitoring your sleep at home and then presumably making decisions about it. And I've done this little experiment of one on myself where I sort of try to assess Okay, I wake up and say, oh, that was a 7 out of 10 for quality and duration was a 8. Mm -hmm. And then I see what the watch tells me. And I reckon there's very poor agreement between them. And mm -hmm. I don't know whether I'm bad at diagnosing my own sleep or whether the device is actually not validly measuring what counts. Yeah. So I guess the first part to that is, can people diagnose their sleep quality? My gut feeling is actually not yes, so not too, not too poorly, in mm -hmm. fact but they need to know what they're looking at. Mm. And I think that's the key. People obsess about duration and it's not just duration. So quality is 
really speaks to everything else other than duration. So how soundly did you sleep? How consolidated was it? Were you awake a lot, etc.? And at the end of the day, the, t- the, the things that you have to look at is how do I feel in the daytime? Mm. If I wake up feeling within 30 minutes, I'm alert and I can do everything I need to do throughout the day without needing to nap. I can multitask. I can remember. I can control my mood and emotions. Um, I can do everything I need to do cognitively and physically. Then you, you wouldn't even give your sleep a second thought because yeah. everything's yeah. intact in the daytime. Yeah. And so when you point people to look there, I think that's important. When people say to me, oh, I've got rubbish sleep, and I ask them, but how they're in the daytime? And if they say that they're fine, then I'm like, your sleep's fine. You've read too many things that have spooked you about your sleep now, yeah. and that's a problem. Yeah. So put that out the window. And then similarly, a lot of athlete monitoring systems ask for sleep scores. Do, do you know if those have any clinical utility? Yeah, I don't think that's a bad idea. Um, really, it's for a point of reference. So if you can tell me that sleep felt I'm satisfied with it. So the two things are satisfaction and restoration. Mm. If you feel satisfied with your sleep, that counts for a lot. And if it was restorative, that's important. Mm. And so when you look over time, you can see what's happening to that score. Um, that's probably quite, mm. quite valid. And then, I, then the third part is the tools. So there's heart rate variability on most wearable devices. I've seen apps that you can download that apparently use your phone's microphone to listen to your breathing and then will diagnose phase of sleep. I mean, how unreliable are these? <laughs> or should people say, actually, this will be quite a good supplement to my subjective perception? Yeah. Yo, I'm a little bit nervous about measurement because for, for two reasons. One, it's darn hard to get apps or devices that measure what they're supposed to measure and what you really need to know. Mm. And then the second part is you can obsess with measurement and that can end up in a problem. You can create a problem where there wasn't necessarily a problem. So I'm just a bit cautious about Mm. measurement. In terms of the devices that are out there, for sure, everything, technology is going so fast. And before long, we will have amazing devices that can tell us a huge amount of information. But right now, much of the... um, the, the validation still is in progress and we're not mm. quite there yet. So you speak about um, whether a, you can put something next to you and it can listen to your breathing in depth. No, man, don't be ridiculous. Yeah. Like that, that's crazy. There are devices that can listen to your snoring level and give you an idea of whether or not snoring's a problem, which is one of the risk factors for sleep apnea. So that in combination with 10 million other questions, that can be really helpful. So, the problem is, is that when we sleep, it's a brain state. So actually, if we really wanted to know what was going on, we need right. to know what's happening in the brain. And so we're using other markers and proxies for that. I mean, in research for home-based research, if we're not looking at the brain, we'll use accelerometry. So it's just movement. It's validated against the, the brain stuff, but it's limited. Hmm. It can only tell us we predict you to be awake or asleep every 15 seconds. And devices are getting better now because now they're using body temperature. They might be using breathing rate, breathing frequency, heart rate variability. And so the more metrics that are coming into the algorithm, the more precise it is. Possibly. Sometimes the more stuff you add, the more likely you are to go the other way and get false positive. It's you overmeasure, right? Yeah, it's absolutely and I mean, true. I remember when we were starting our studies, uh, heart rate variability was being promoted, I think, for the first time as a way to diagnose overtraining. And at that time, the reason not to use it was that the, the hardware just wasn't good enough to measure what it was claiming to measure. Mm-hmm. So 
So if you if you can imagine, you've got like there's a gold standard for how you measure heart rate variability, and then there's a watch. Yeah, it didn't match up. Yeah, I think that tech has narrowed now to yes. the point that we're probably measuring the right thing. Yeah, and now the big barrier is well, what does it mean? How do we interpret it? Yeah, yeah. That's exactly so, what's happening. And that's this is true, by the way. We're going to do a part on using tech. This is the fundamental challenge with tech is yeah. you can measure it. That's challenge one. But that's like the small hill before the big mountain. The big mountain is like, what does it even mean? Completely. So listeners are going, well, I've got access to tech and I like the idea of science of sleep. Mm-hmm. What should I do? Yeah. The thing is, there so, are, I mean, there are devices, for instance, like the wearable watches that you can wear these days and there's a device called Whoop, which, which a lot of people overseas will know, where you know, you're wearing that all the time. And then as you, as you both say, you know, your heart rate will dictate whether you're resting or you're not resting. So that certainly there's a better it – it's not a bad way of measuring well, could, whether you're getting enough sleep. It could be because the problem is with all of these things, and then I'll hand it over to Dale for the specific, is you, you're using that tech because you want to make a decision. So you're going to get a piece of information and you're going to make a decision against it. If that information exists for reasons other than your decision, you'll make exactly the wrong decision. So sometimes you'll decide to train hard because the device has permitted it when you shouldn't have. And that's that's a false negative because the test, you've passed the test, you should have failed it. Other times you get a false positive where you fail the test, as in the the tech, and you should Take it easy, but you don't, or, or vice versa. You get what I'm getting mm-hmm. at. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, so it's sometimes inaccurate or incorrect information is bad. Yeah. And in this context of sleep, that's where Dale can yeah. help out with that. So I think you have to ask what you're trying to measure. Yeah. I mean, I, 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 that would always be my starting point. And I think where possible, you want to be as few steps removed from the gold standard, which is difficult. I understand that. So therefore, a wearable is going to outperform something that's lying next to you. Mm. Like there's no doubt about that. You cannot have something lying next to you that tells you about your sleep based on your movement. That's crazy. Mm. Um, And then also people are jumping into a lot of, well, we want to know about sleep stages. I also want to know about sleep stages. I would kill to know very much how much am I in my slow wave i mean because you mean to have 20 percent of your night you should be in slow wave sleep am i am i there or not and as an athlete do you get enough and am i having too much or too little rim i'd love to know these things is my sleep too light the devices that are available for the public are sometimes okay and sometimes not and i would never use them for that useful is perhaps to look at patterns mm-hmm. um what is happening in terms of my sleep timing that's super easy to look at and sleep duration um, and then how do you feel, which will then speak to the quality. Mm. So timing and duration and regularity are key. And those are probably important things. So, so I, I don't think I did a t- particularly good job in my little intermission there. Let's, let's take a basic example to illustrate this is heart rate during sleep. Now, it mm-hmm. used to be heart rate you measured when you woke up for the first 30 seconds, right? That would have been the nowadays. The device will tell you your average heart rate for the last three hours of sleep. How good a predictor or measure of sleep quality is that? So I'm not sure that that's going to tell you about sleep quality. It's going to tell you about whether or not you're heading towards illness or not or overtraining or not potentially. So heart rate, like anything else that we measure, has circadian rhythmicity. And so heart rate um, goes up slowly all day long and it drops while you sleep and it's nice and low. And then it comes up the next day. So whether or not your heart rate's going up or down, who knows? Probably heart rate variability is slightly more interesting. Yeah, so then next level is heart rate variability. And then we'll go to maybe what the next thing is. But let's talk heart rate variability. Yeah, so heart rate variability is, we think, really important. And it's from this perspective. 
when you sleep, you change from the state of fight and flight, which you're in the daytime, to rest and digest. So that's part of your nervous system that is in charge of you going into rest and digest. We can measure that via a proxy, heart rate variability. So um, we, we, we're trying to use that to understand what's happening from a sympathetic nervous system perspective at nighttime. And that's probably quite useful um, because people that are having um, problems at nighttime with sustaining sleep, who are bouncing out of sleep the whole time, are probably more in that fight and flight mode. So that heart rate variability might give us more information about that because we should see the switch to the dominance of the sympathetic ner parasympathetic nervous system, fight mm -hmm. and flight, but that probably doesn't happen in people who are super anxious or have uh, sleep broken for any other reasons. Because so, you can't see their lower level. Yeah. They're always on a higher level. Yeah. Okay. But the other thing to, to yeah, think so, about... So, sorry, the, so the principle yeah. on heart rate variability, maybe we can just define yeah. it because some listeners might, might not know, is that you can have a heart rate of, say, 60. Yeah, And that heart rate could be achieved either with very high variability from one beat to the next. So now it's beat, 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 beat. Or it can be metronomic, beat, 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 beat. That's my very basic overview of it. And when it is more metronomic, there's lower variability. That is actually an indicator of a higher sympathetic or yeah. stress response. So actually, a healthy system is a more variable system. Yeah. And the heart rate, the 60 beats a minute, doesn't tell you. You've got to go like a level below that and measure yeah. how much time actually goes by between beats and how variable is that time over a period of longer time. Totally. So, sorry, I, thought, so. I thought we were always metronomic. No, no you no, don't no, want no. to be metronomic. Yeah, you want variation. Really? Healthy yeah. systems, are, are, they look more random. Yeah. Wow. Really interesting. So I think that, yeah, so that's really, that's really cool. And so, for example, the thinking is that when we're in deep sleep, we are super, super... Um, slowed down and relaxed and we think that that's when we get maximum heart rate variability from a sleep perspective and when you come up into n1 or rem sleep then you, you you go slightly more into that sympathetic sort of fight and flight mode and so then heart rate variability becomes more um uh, uh stable yeah so there's less variability mm -hmm. so the thinking is that if we people can they're trying to predict sleep staging of heart rate variability which is good in concept but it doesn't always come out an example is i know an athlete who actually has an electrical condition in his heart so now his device is feeding him information on recovery based on heart rate variability and because he's got this very erratic heartbeat it looks like high heart rate variability which is really healthy and now under high training zone his heart is under more stress than usual but he's getting this feedback saying your sleep is deep and it's great and you've, you know, you, you're not getting any REM sleep. Don't worry about that. You'll peg from that. But your deep sleep's great. You can keep training at this load and it's actually misinformation. So, so that's an example of he's gotten exactly the wrong information. Yeah. And he will make exactly the wrong decision off of it. Totally. Mm. And, and I don't know how common those are. If, if that was a one in a hundred condition, then the tool would still have merit for 99 of our listeners. Yes, which is what most of these tools do. And I don't, I just don't know yet. And it's because I'm having, you're more immersed in it. I just don't know how reliable it is in the other 99, whether, the, whether it's throwing up 10% or is it 30% misleading? From, I, don't, I don't know. Yeah. So I would just be cautious. I mean, at the end of the day, I think, I mean, I like information or variables of course because i like to measure things but i'm also just really careful of i'm not going to overinterpret it from a sleep perspective i'm going to say how do i feel in the daytime you know if you're not recovered you know if you're underslept yeah, like yeah. let's be honest yeah. Yeah. can you tell apart the because there's a few reasons you might feel tired in the daytime mm -hmm. as a sleep expert 
Are you always looking at sleep first? No. So, so at what point does sleep become your likeliest explanation? <laughs> in the absence, unfortunately, but in again, the absence people, of... But if people can't judge it, then... Yeah. So then, when you get people come to you who say, like, um, something's wrong with my sleep, you got to say, well, we'll look at duration, of course. We're going to look at can you sustain a good look at timing of sleep and how regular it is and all of these things. Mm. But it always at the same time, we look for what's going on from a mental health perspective, because a lot of mental health conditions go hand in hand with a sleep problem and or excessive fatigue and including the medication that is used to treat many of these conditions. Mm. What's happening from a hormonal perspective. So you get a lot of people with like the um, women who have uh, PCOS or even going through menopause, men who mm. have low testosterone or, those kinds of things. So it, it, there's a multitude of other conditions, hypothyroidism, hyperthyroidism. They all impact sleep and they can all impact fatigue. Mm. So you need to check out all of those things and make sure that those are intact. And if those are more or less intact, then it's probably more down to maybe a behavioral mm. aspect of sleep. But very often you're not going to fully sort out sleep in someone with certain mental health conditions or medication because those are just like destroying sleep anyway mm. so beyond is, heart rate variability is there a third option a headband that has some mm -hmm. a, a five sensor eeg system that someone could buy and then you is it, do that, those things exist in the commercial yeah they market? do they're being piloted um and being sold in fact um some people uh, when they get them right when they get the technology right that the algorithm that the hardware is not bad mm. okay and um the once they can properly understand exactly what they're measuring and how to report on that, then absolutely that'll be very cool. Mm. You just go to sleep looking like Vitus Carolatus. <laughs> <laughs> That's was he the one who wore the headband, or was it John McEnroe? I never know. Well, uh, John Mac, Vitus I mean, uh, some of the listeners are going, "Is that who's Vitus Carolatus? Is that the Latin name shows for my sleep age. deprivation?" I mean, that <laughs> shows, shows my age. It sounds so, like the illness. So there's a couple. Of, I mean, there's other things around sleep which I'm always fascinated by. So, just what is sleep apnea? Oh, cool. So, a sleep apnea is a sleep-related breathing disorder. It's the second most common sleep disorder, insomnia being the most common. Sleep apnea, the second most. And so essentially what happens is when a person's sleeping, somewhere in their upper airways, the upper airways collapse mm -hmm. and then um, air can't pass through. So the muscles are still trying to breathe. So you'll look at their chest and usually you'll still see the rise and fall of the chest, but there'll be no flow through the, through the nose. And you can, so what happens is they desaturate because obviously they're not breathing for a certain amount of time and it must be at least 10 seconds or more. That's called an apnea when there's complete occlusion, so you no air is going through. And then, of course, your oxygen saturation goes down. The brain goes, oh, my goodness, shoots out adrenaline, causes you to gasp mm. or snort. And you go like this, snort or snore or gasp <laughs> yeah, or whatever. Yeah. And that reinitiates breathing. And then the person breathes, often very loud and snorey, and then it happens again. And so apnea, the problem with apnea is that two things. In 80% of people, it's undiagnosed. So yeah. of the people who have it, 80% do not know and that they have the it. What's that prevalence of people who have it? Oh, it's about 15. Well, it's tricky in South Africa, but like probably probably more people, um, between between 7 and 10%. It's probably, oh, wow. it's quite a lot higher than you would have thought. Yeah, that's no, it's high. Mm -hmm. And because it's linked with um, obesity, that's one. It's a, there's, there's genetic conditions, but obesity is a big factor. Um, there's a number of, it's well, an you inflammatory. Can get, you can get sleep apnea as a result of obesity. Yes. Okay. Yeah. yeah. Simply put, um, 
obesity is an inflammatory condition apnea is an inflammatory condition on top of that you store weight around your neck mm-hmm. and when you pressure. sleep now you collapse your upper airways yeah how do you so, know if you've got it then how do you know usually your unless partner you're unless you're married with a yeah. partner going hey yeah so the things to look for is you're getting sufficient sleep ish at night as far as you know you're desperately trying you're doing like your seven eight nine hours whatever it is that you're trying to get but you are whacked in the daytime you constantly would like to sleep you find yourself nodding off and falling asleep nobody in their right mind should be sleeping in the daytime unless you have hectic sleep deprivation Mm. so what apnea does is it keeps lightening your sleep so you don't get the deep sleep that you need Mm. so you are absolutely physically exhausted and you haven't had a good quality sleep and so it's that daytime sleepiness which is big and if you know you're a big snorer so the risk factors for apnea are my high BMI, so being um, obese, mm-hmm. um, having a big neck circumference, okay, because that indicates yeah. that fat's over there, yeah. um, age, so over 50, more common, male, more common mm-hmm. than female, um, and then, of course, snoring, loud snoring that you can hear in the room next door, and then having someone tell you that you probably stop breathing. Incurable, is it? Um, manageable. Yeah. Which is a bit disappoint, a bit disappointing, mm. because you'd like to know. So if if on one extreme you have this incredibly overweight human, um, obese human, and everything else is fine, this, their anatomy is absolutely fine for the upper airways, and they were to drop right down into the normal weight category, it's possible right. that they will lose the symptoms and they will be fine. But for um. For many people, that's really difficult to do. So it's usually managed with something called CPAP, which is a type of mask that you sleep with that puffs air into your mouth to help keep your airways open when you breathe in. Some people use a, it's called a mandibular advancement device, which pulls their lower jaw forward, which helps open up the, the airway space at the back, which is quite successful as well. Um, and some people, and then obviously managing with diet and exercise is huge. Mm. Yeah. So, I guess certain foods also make things more inflammatory at night. For those that suffer from those sort of things, I guess. Yeah, you know, yeah. We, there's lots of anecdotal evidence um, for people who will swear that when they made changes to their diet and they helped address inflammation, that they saw huge changes with snoring and potentially even apnea. Mm-hmm. But it's unlikely that's going to be the thing that takes you out mm-hmm. of apnea. Mm-hmm. Okay, so give us some practical tips. Um, what do you do when you go to bed at night? What's your? You know a lot about this. What is it that you do that gives you the best quality sleep? Give us some, give us some or stuff should, that we or can take they, home. Or should they? Head on pillow, close yes. eyes, go to sleep. You don't have a <laughs> no, I mean, no. there's all this, don't watch the screen, yeah. you know, all that kind of no, stuff. No. I mean, how much of that That's is gone. all true? <laughs> um, so, you know what? There are a couple of things. There are all these hygiene tips, which you can talk about. and and Sleep hygiene. Sleep hygiene tips, exactly. And these are things like um, don't eat too late, don't have caffeine too late, be careful with too much alcohol. What do you mean by that? Don't eat two, hours two to three hours before bedtime. So you want to keep like a, a, a buffer between all your daytime activities and nighttime. And that's um, because your the act of eating triggers physiological responses that elevate your temperature, your metabolic rate, and so on. I mean, I for sure, if you have a late dinner, you can't go to sleep. It's very difficult to no, sleep. eating is a trigger to be awake. It's yeah. a signal to be awake, like okay, so being active. So sleep. Eat within three hours of going to sleep. Yeah, that's a good. Uh, yeah, no, longer than within three hours. Don't eat. Within Don't eat. Three hours. Longer than three hours. The window okay. is two to three hours. If you're going hours. to bed at 10 o'clock at night, you should be eating seven. by seven, seven, seven at the latest. Yeah, yeah absolutely. And finish eating by seven. Yeah, and then no snacking and that afterwards. All right. Um, huh. 
and then so the no other sort of on the couch then <laughs> oh, for, many, <laughs> for many reasons that's chuckles are chocolate here and something forget for those of you that <laughs> and some coffee the other behavioral things would be to um create like a wind down routine at the end of the day so have a specific time at which you cut off from work um mm. a lot of people you know you'll work through a deadline and then try and get into bed and wonder why you can't go to sleep well your brain hasn't had a chance to turn off you've got to give that brain a chance to let go so you've got to cut off from from that technology is another huge thing so the technology has got a double a double problem one is the light that comes off your devices so um, often the light is bright it's in the blue wavelength spectrum which is a very alerting light like outdoor light and when you're exposed to that at the end of the day you suppress melatonin and you suppress and delay the body's um, natural melatonin response and you need melatonin to signal sleep time so if you're sitting there on your phone or on your ipad or laptop and it's unfiltered there's enough bright light coming off that device to squash your melatonin which will delay your bedtime so you absolutely need to think about that the other thing of course is that and this is probably more with with teens but um, devices are a massive distraction and they're often quite emotional as well because mm-hmm. what are you doing at the end of the day news and social mm-hmm. media and yeah. these things can create like you it can take one message it can even be a work message but it can be a, a social message that can make you feel extremely excited extremely hurt or sad and boom thanks for coming but you're going to have a rough night because your brain is going to obsess about what you've just learned now yeah, and devices so. have got n- night modes on them where they say that they take away certain light yeah you definitely want to set yeah that's super effective so what there's is the light difference what is the difference of the technology there blue light, so yeah. you're filtering blue light so light is, has right. a spectrum of course and we want um we are very susceptible to the alerting effect of short wavelength blue light because that's like sunlight mm-hmm. whereas um, I'm looking at your lighting here. Lighting. <laughs> yeah. Disappointing. So um, <laughs> indoor lighting is a little bit better, but you want lighting that is long wavelength. So um, it's more in the orange, yellow, even red spectrum. That doesn't have, like firelight, think about it. It's most obvious. Firelight is not alerting. It does not right. suppress melatonin. So the devices, when you put them onto um, night shift or night mode, You want to set them to sunrise and sunset and then what they do and you should do it on your laptop everything that you can it'll start to filter the blue light once the sun goes down wherever you happen to be located Mm -hmm. and then if you're working early morning it'll also be filtered and then it'll come up early in the the morning so they do work i always thought it was just a gimmick to be honest no i'm a big fan of using that because not everybody has the luxury of saying yo well I can't work for the two hours before bedtime because some people have to work and so for some people that's how they relax like Mm -hmm. let's be honest some people watch tv to relax or series or yeah. information and that's fine um and so then you want to enable it, that if that's your way mm. to relax because mm. actually the most important thing is the two hours before bedtime you have to do the things you love doing yeah. it's a happy space yeah. to allow you to get into the right headspace mm. to to move into sleep there's people will say what can you eat like should i eat stuff no just don't eat um well before bedtime yeah. there isn't really hard evidence to say that this promotes sleep um, but certain people will know, like, this doesn't make me feel good, therefore I don't like to sleep. Some people say, should I shower before I go to bed? Well, whatever. <laughs> that sounds terrible. It's part, of a <laughs> ret- it's part of a routine. So if you can create a routine, then that's important. Uh, and then your... White noise? White noise. Um, so it depends if you need it. If you mm-hmm. can, if you're okay with hearing the dog bark and sounds around you and that doesn't irritate you, 
and you can filter that out naturally. You don't need white noise. If you're a person who's super sensitive and who's constantly scanning your environment, listening to that, you will not let your guard down and sleep and white noise can help because it can help block out the other sounds. Mm -hmm. uh, temperature? Also super important. Preference. No, very important. Um, personal preference, yep, but super important. Yeah. So your body temperature is on a circadian rhythm, rhythm, of course. It has to drop at the end of the day and that signals bedtime. If your body temperature doesn't drop, you don't get the signal for bed. And in fact, owls and larks can have a three to five hour difference at the time of day in which their body temperature drops. Oh, so no. that's why the signals are so different. Mm. And so what happens is during the night, most people will sleep often in the first half of the night. And there's halfway through the night, there's a natural point in your sleep where you wake. Everyone wakes up halfway through. It's like breaks your night into two halves. Mm -hmm. For people who are cool with sleeping, they'll wake up, hear the dog bark, roll over, go back to sleep, happy days. For people that struggle with insomnia, that 1 to 3 a.m. is murder because very often you don't go back to sleep again. And you'll notice sometimes body temperature goes up. Sometimes you can hear your heart rate and your breathing in your ears. So you've actually gone into that fight and flight mode. And with temperature and all of that, that's come up. Mm. And that's going to make sleep really difficult. So then you actually physically need to cool off. You need to try and physically force sleep to come back mm. by re-signaling and getting rid mm. of the heat. I've, I've certainly encountered that. Yeah. Why? I mean, we're running out of time. I think we'll get you. We'll get you back, maybe, if you yeah, don't mind. Um, why do overtrained athletes struggle to sleep? Yo, um, so it's always been a paradox. Is one of the first signs that you're training too hard is you don't sleep. Oh, that's silly because mm. I should sleep more, but actually you can't. Is that just sympathetic nervous system? predominance and it just you, your brain just then can't go into the necessary adjustment very much so yeah so okay. when you hit overtraining, that's exactly what you go into more of that fight and flight yeah. sort of side of things there's also of course uh, extra muscle pain um and it's right. not to say that you don't experience so, muscle pain when you're not overtrained because some of us do mm. but more pain at night is just incredibly disturbing yeah, anyway it's, it's i know that it's just like an, it's a dull achy pain that yeah. you can't I'd rather sleep with a torn muscle than an arthritic type of pain. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Develop, which was then the kind of why I asked this question is, is, is there, has any research ever established that there's a best position to sleep? <laughs> That's a good question. So many people <laughs> want to know that. And a lot of the um, commercial companies will claim yes there is and that's why we design a mattress or a pillow or yeah. this or that like this or that. The short of it is <laughs> I always think if it's not broken don't fix it. So if you sleep on your head it doesn't matter if you sleep. But um, if you're in a position, so a person who struggles with breathing and very obese, overweight people have got to sleep more upright and they generally would, on their back can be dangerous as well because their airways are going to close more. Mm. Um, if you've got people with arthritis in shoulders and necks, then being on the side is not great because you can be sore. You often need to be more on your, on your back. But at the end of the day, it's actually just what's comfortable for you. There is no advantage to sleeping in a specific position in terms of what happens to your sleep structure and any of that. I suppose you can't really change it either because you, your body does what it naturally does, doesn't it? You'd have yeah. to constrain yeah. yourself with rails or something. <laughs> yeah, or people like put yeah. tennis, so tennis balls in the back of your shirt so you're just uncomfortable to roll onto your back and that makes you keep going onto your side. And yeah. <laughs> what about yeah. Tom Brady's infrared pajamas? Ah. Oh. Good question. Do you know about that one? No. <laughs> we interviewed uh, Christy Ashwand and he'd written a book called Good to Go. It was about the non-science, occasional science, but mostly non-science, non nonsense <laughs> of recovery. And one of the chapters, well, not a chapter, but one of the things she talks about is gimmicks. And Tom Brady, who last night won the Super Bowl again, is 
a something of a business enterprise and he's got a lot of gimmicks and one of them is infrared pajamas which allegedly make you sleep better i'm not even going to ask you for opinion because it's so bad no, i want to know i've got to know what your opinion wow. is no i don't have an opinion it's a one, <laughs> it's a one word answer uh, no <laughs> what would be the benefit of having infrared pajamas what's it supposed to do i guess it was going to be blood flow and temperature at the skin but you don't even mm. want to be warmer. No, you don't. You actually so it want... it actually feels counterproductive based on what you said a few minutes ago. No, totally. Yeah. You, you don't want that at all. Yeah. Uh-uh. But I mean, what, give me one of the... What's the craziest gimmick you've seen? Because sleep seems right for this stuff. I mean, it's... Oh, gosh. Uh, so that's what that, I was just thinking of a gimmick. Some Tom Brady's infrared PJs popped into my head. But yeah. There's got to be some sleeping... Do people sleep upside down like bats? <laughs> Some guy's hung himself up from his ankles and said, I'm going to do like a bat. No, <laughs> I haven't even seen that. Yeah. It's more that people, it's more what people want to ingest. Oh, yeah. I, I find yeah. that that's like the gimmick, you know, yeah. like if I, and I feel like it's just, it's with the greatest respect, it's not just witchcraft, but I mean, like if I eat this type of food or these berries, like, I don't, yeah. I, I don't want to go and bad mouth any foods now because I'll be careful with this, but it's mostly, you know, and people will swear by, um, cannabis or I don't know what it is but like there's a lot of stuff that's I mean that's a whole nother story CBD on oils. CBD oil people love it people will swear by it mm. um, yeah but a lot of these things there just isn't enough evidence behind them and I guess though because sleep is so personal and so emotional and psychological when someone finds a routine and it works for them and that routine includes CBD oil now mm-hmm. it's the secret of course it is so totally. it, really, it really is an area that is vulnerable to yeah. anecdotal Absolutely. evangelism totally I will always say to people you have to look in people want to look out for sleep they want to say like what can I wear eat drink how should I lie they're constantly looking out but to be honest, if there's nothing physiologically wrong with you, you've always got to look in as to why you can't sleep because primarily mm. it's up in the head. Mm. Fascinating. Dr. Del Rey, it's been an absolutely wonderful conversation with you. Mm-hmm. And I know that we're going to get a lot of people asking questions on our Twitter feed. Don't forget you can engage with us on Sports SciPod and ask us any question you'd like. And I think maybe in a couple of months' time, we actually need to ask questions about sleep and get people and maybe we bring you back. What we'll do is we'll send our Patreons yeah. a request. Excellent you guys idea. ask your sleep questions. Dale will Yeah. I've awesome. learned a huge amount <laughs> from you today. I have to say, it's been quite fascinating just to listen to cool. some of your details. And I uh, look forward to, I'd actually love to come and see your facility, actually, just to see what it looks like. I mean, it must be amazing to just to, to be part of that sort of space. You know? Yeah, sure. You're welcome anytime. Yeah, yeah. Home, and thanks for having me. Yeah, home visits. It's fascinating. You know? with the EGs and you know, it must have bring my teddy bear with me or without me. You know, how much does it, like kids and the fascination of kids around sleep is amazing. You know, oh, it's huge. I've got a three-year-old. I know you've got young children as well. You know how they wake up in the middle of the night and then for three nights they're perfectly fine and then they suddenly wake up at three o'clock in the morning. It's just, it's an amazing space to be. I imagine for you, it's a fascinating space. It's to be fascinating, every day. yeah, because yeah. everyone's got a sleep story, so everyone can relate pretty mm. much. So yeah, it feels relevant. Well, thank you very much for your time. Much appreciated. (laughs) Cool. You're welcome. Thank you for listening to the Science of Sport podcast. Follow us on Twitter at SportsSciPod and on Instagram at Science of Sport podcast. Hold up. 
What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Mm. 